We're going to be in Paul's letter to the Colossians. And for those of you who are new, I'm, my name's Thomas. I always forget the name tag. I'm up here once a month to bring you the word. And we are making our way through Paul's short letter to the Christians at Colossae. And we are in chapter 3 this morning. If you're using one of these fancy blue Bibles that we provide, that I took, one of them, it's on page 984. And our text, picking up where we left off, our text is going to be verses 16 and 17. It's just two verses. So chapter 3, verse 16 and 17 in Colossians on page 984. First, what I usually like to do, because it's been a month's time since we were in this book last together, is to do a little review. So I, wanna, I want us to recall what, what Paul has communicated in his letter so far. He's instructed the Colossians about the Lord Jesus Christ's supremacy over all things and the sufficiency of his redemptive work on their behalf. And he's done this so that they would not be lured by false teachers into thinking that they needed to pursue human philosophy and religious traditions and mystical experiences and or an ascetic lifestyle to be closer to God. Christ is sufficient. He is supreme, Paul says. Paul to the Colossians that through knowing Christ, they had access to everything they needed to know for life and for godliness, because all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are stored up in Christ. They did not need spiritual gurus to enlighten them. They did not need some elite group of religious zealots to show them how to be more spiritually empowered and devoted to God. They had Christ. Through faith in him, they had been reconciled to God. Because of his sacrificial death and their place for their sins, they had been redeemed. They had been delivered from the domain of darkness, that is, from subjection to the rule of Satan and from the bondage of their sin. And they had been forgiven of all their trespasses. They were now in Christ, in Christ. And because of this reality, they had the hope that they would ultimately be presented holy and blameless and above reproach before God. Paul then began to instruct the Colossians on how they were to live out their redeemed lives in light of the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ. He gave them Exhortation upon exhortation in his letter as to how they were to continue in the faith, to live lives worthy of Christ, and to press on towards maturity in Christ. Paul's first and primary exhortation was back in chapter 2, it was in verses 6 or 7. And it was this, it was that they, they keep walking in Christ remaining rooted in him and being built up in him. That was his primary exhortation. His first one, his primary one. 
he warned them then in the rest of chapter 2 to watch out for those who would try to lead them away from trusting in the sufficiency of Christ. He then told them at the beginning of chapter 3 to seek and to set their minds on things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. In other words, they are to be heavenly-minded. They are to maintain a heavenly perspective on their earthly lives. Their thoughts and ambitions are to be oriented towards their risen and exalted Lord. And then in verses 5 through 14 of chapter 3, Paul exhorted the Colossians to put to death and put away any trace of ungodliness that could be found in them and to clothe themselves with the virtues of Christ so that they would be adorned with Christ-likeness. And in verse 15, Paul said they were to let the peace of Christ rule in their hearts. Well, that brings us to verses 16 and 17, which together form a conclusion to this large section of Paul's exhortations to the church as a whole before he goes on to address specific groups within the congregation. So here's what Paul writes. So again, he's addressing the church as a body, as a whole group. He will move on to addressing specific members within the congregation or groups within the congregation, but here's what he finally says to them as a whole. Starting in verse 16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him. First, let's consider how exceedingly important Paul's leading command is in verse 16. What does he say? Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. I've already made the case that the greatest and most central commandment in Colossians is the first one that Paul gives back in chapter 2, verses 6 through 7, which is, As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. That's the first and greatest commandment in Colossians. Now, I would say the second one is like it. Let me add, see what I'm doing here? Let me add that the second greatest commandment in Colossians is the one that we have here. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Why do I say that? Well, because it is the means by which we are equipped and enabled to keep the rest of the commandments or exhortations in this letter, including that first one. Keep walking in Christ. If we are to keep walking in Christ, if we are to remain rooted in him, if we are to continue being built up in him, if we are to be orienting our thoughts and ambitions towards him, if we are to clothe ourselves with his likeness, 
If we are to let his peace rule in our hearts, well, then we must let his word dwell in us richly. Back in chapter 1, we saw that Paul's prayer for the Colossians was that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. So the means by which we are filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding is the word of Christ. Let's clarify what what Paul means when he says the word of Christ. This is a unique phrase occurring only here in the New Testament. I mean, in, in the... In the Greek, there's another one that's translated this way, but it's not the same Greek words. It's here it is, ha logos to Christu, the word of Christ. And this is the only time it appears in the New Testament. Paul uses it right here. It's a unique phrase. Now it's it's not simply the word about Christ, which Paul referred to at the beginning of this letter as the word of truth, the gospel. It's more than that. It's it's more precisely the word from Christ. It is the word from Christ that is the revelation of God through him. As it says in the book of Hebrews, long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers, speaking to Israelites, right? Their forefathers. He spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. The Apostle John referred to Christ as the Word. And he wrote in his gospel, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And in verse 18, he writes, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, referring to God the Son, he has made him known. So we could say that the word of Christ is basically synonymous with all of Scripture. Because, first of all, Christ's teaching assumed what God had already revealed through the prophets, which is what we have in the Old Testament. Secondly, Christ's teaching during the time of his earthly ministry is what we have in the Gospels. And thirdly, Christ's teaching continued after his ascension by the Spirit through his apostles. And this is contained in the rest of the New Testament. It is the Word of Christ. The Word of Christ is the Word of God. Although it would be fair to say that the emphasis here is on Christ's teaching and commandments contained in the New Testament. I mean, if there is an emphasis using this phrase, it would be concentrated there on on Christ's teaching and commandments. Now, what is Paul's command to the Colossians? It is that they let the word of Christ dwell where? In them. How? Richly. Paul affirmed at the beginning of his letter that the word of Christ indeed had already taken root in them. And it was bearing fruits in them. 
And this could be seen by their faith in Christ and love for all the saints, which he praised God for. God, uh, Paul rejoiced and praised God for the, the, the fact that the word of Christ had taken root in them and was bearing this fruit, this evidence that could be evidenced by their faith in Christ and love for the saints. Then his prayer for them was that they then be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that they walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And part of that walking in a manner worthy of the Lord is that they would keep increasing in their knowledge of God. And so he exhorts them here to let the word of Christ, which had taken root in them, the now dwell in them, be at home in them, in abundance, to dwell in them richly. So picture your mind. I'll say mind rather than the heart, but the, the mind, which essentially is the essence of who you are. It's your inner being. Picture it as a house. If you have been born again and believe the gospel, then the word of Christ has entered in and taken up permanent residence there. Now, Paul says, let it dwell in you richly. And here's a question for you. Are you treating the word of Christ in this house of yours? Are you treating the word of Christ like a guest who has limited access and is not in charge of things? Or are you treating the word of Christ as the owner of the house? the master of the house. If the teachings and commandments of Christ simply occupy a a small space in the back of your mind, then the word of Christ is not dwelling in you richly. One commentator says this, the word of Christ has come to us, but that is not enough. It must dwell in us or keep house not as a servant in a family who is under another's control, but as a master who has a right to prescribe to and direct all under his roof. It must dwell in us, that is, be always ready and at hand to us in everything and have its due influence and use. It must dwell in us richly, not only keep house in our hearts, but keep a good house. Many have the word of Christ dwelling in them, but it dwells in them, but poorly. It has no mighty force and influence upon them. The soul prospers when the word of God dwells in us richly, when we have an abundance of it in us and are full of the scriptures and of the grace of Christ. So how do we let Christ's word dwell in us richly? How do we do that? Well, it's implied. We must continually give ourselves to hearing it so that we know what it says and to studying it so that we understand what it means, meditating on it so that we remember it and obeying it so that we conform to it. That's the whole picture right there. If it doesn't get to that last part, it ain't doing any good. It's not dwelling in you richly. 
So whether or not Christ's word dwells in you richly depends on whether or not you are regularly doing all of these things. Now, after giving the command at the beginning of verse 16, Paul goes on to describe the activity that results from obedience to this command. It's essentially what we see here. He says in verse 16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. And again, I would say it's, it's uh, indicating the result of Christ's word dwelling in you richly. There's a, another letter Paul wrote, his letter to the Ephesians. And he said something very similar. The words are almost exactly the same. And there he says, be filled with the Spirit. That is, be led by the Spirit, controlled by the Spirit. And he speaks of activity that results from that. There's not really any other way to understand it other than when the Spirit of God has a hold of you and your thinking and your understanding has a hold of your heart, this is the kind of activity result. So the same thing here, but the parallel, he says here in Colossians, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, which would tell us the means by which the Spirit is truly leading us and has control and we're yielding to the Spirit's work is through the word of Christ. So the resulting activity, the first statement is twofold. It's teaching and admonishing. Now, we see the phrase teaching and admonishing in all wisdom, that exact phrase. We've seen it before. We've seen it earlier in Paul's letter. Here in Colossians, it was back at the end of chapter 1. And Paul was describing his ongoing work of gospel ministry. He said that he and his fellow workers were warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom in order that they may present everyone mature in Christ. So when it comes to teaching and admonishing the saints, what's the goal? Maturity in Christ, that everyone might be mature in Christ. And here Paul says to the Colossians, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly so that you also will be teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. In other words, so that you will be building each other up towards maturity in Christ. So what we see here is that the activity of teaching and admonishing wasn't only to be carried out by Paul and the other apostles, nor is it only to be carried out by those whom the Lord raises up to be pastor-teachers. It is meant to be carried out by every member in the body of Christ, though certainly in different capacities. But we are all to participate in this activity, teaching and admonishing one another, one another that we might be built up towards maturity in Christ. The Lord has indeed given only certain men to be pastor teachers in his church, but his purpose for them is to effectively equip the rest of the saints with his words so that they in turn would build each other up with it and thus grow together towards full maturity in Christ. And, and we see this this intended uh, activity through, through the gifting of certain men to equip the rest of the body, but that the body would then take their equipping and build each other up. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul writes this. He says, speaking the truth, that is teaching and admonishing one another, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, 
makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now, back to Colossians 3.16, what does it mean for us to be teaching and admonishing one another? Well, by teaching one another, Paul basically means we are to be instructing one another in the truth and in the way of righteousness, both of which are centered on Christ. And by admonishing one another, he basically means that we are to be warning and correcting one another when we stray or when we think about straying from the truth and from the way of righteousness. That's what it means to admonish. To think, teaching is like the positive activity. Admonishing is the, the corrective, warning, redirection. There's usually some resistance. It's impressed upon the mind to bring someone back to what? Truth and the way of righteousness centered on Christ. So admonishing is warning and correction intended to steer someone back onto the right path and to persuade them to stay on it. Now, Paul adds that these two activities are to be done how? What does he say? What's accompanied with them? In all wisdom. In all wisdom. In other words, our teaching and admonishing is to be directed with godly wisdom so that it is done appropriately, thoughtfully, and gracefully. If it's not done appropriately, thoughtfully, and gracefully, it's kind of hard to receive, not really effective. We need to do it in all wisdom. So here's the thing. We won't be teaching and admonishing one another rightly or doing it at all, and we certainly won't be doing it in all wisdom unless we are letting the word of Christ dwell on us richly. So how do we achieve this? What must, we, what must we do so that Christ's word does fill our mind and govern our thinking? Well, we must not only internalize it, as we've said, through reading and study and meditation. We must also fight against the two things that are always in competition with it. And we'll push it to the furthest recesses of our minds. We must fight against these two things. They're always in competition with the word of Christ and we'll push it to the furthest recesses of our minds if we allow them to. We are to let Christ's word dwell in us richly and we are to do this through internalizing and fighting these two things, fighting against, first of all, the sinful desires of our flesh and two, fighting against the cares of this life. So with regard to the first one, well, Paul has said what? With regard to the sinful desires of your flesh, he's already given them instructions. What do you do with those? Well, he said earlier in the chapter, put to death what is earthly in you. Put it to death. Put away from you, in other words, ungodly thinking and attitudes. And with regard to the second thing that's in competition with the word of Christ, the cares of this life, whether they're really concerns, or really just distractions. Paul has also given some instructions earlier in this chapter. He said, back in verse 2, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. What are you preoccupied with? Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly so that you will be teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom. 
Paul mentions another result of letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly. He says in verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. As is the case with teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing to God is an overflow of the word of Christ dwelling in you richly. Singing what to God? Well, Paul mentions psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, basically all kinds of songs. I mean, each of these terms can basically refer to, in general, songs of praise to God. In which case, by using all three terms instead of just one of them, Paul is emphasizing the variety of praise songs to God that will flow from the lips of those in whom the word of Christ dwells richly. However, it could be that by using three separate terms, Paul is indicating some sort of distinction between the three. And by Psalms, perhaps he's referring to the Old Testament Psalms. And that by hymns, he's referring to, the, to songs of praise that testify specifically to the person and work of Christ. And that by spiritual songs, he's referring to songs that essentially correspond with the Spirit of God. In other words, songs that are consistent with the truth of Scripture and aim to give glory to God. That's a spiritual song. But either way, all kinds of singing to God. Praise is due to his name. Now notice the way in which these songs are sung to God. Paul says, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Well, that's key. That's key. Why? Because anyone can outwardly sing songs of praise to God. I mean, it's not that hard. Anyone can do that. People can certainly honor the Lord with their lips, and they can do that even while their hearts remain far from him. Some may sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs reluctantly, thinking of it as some kind of chore. Some may sing out of a sense of obligation, okay, rather than thinking of it as a a personal free will offering of praise to God. I mean, just like our giving, right? Not reluctantly or under compulsion. What are you doing? Keep your money. God loves what? A cheerful giver? Hey, I'll tell you what. You know what God also loves? He likes a cheerful singer. Don't you sing reluctantly or under compulsion? I know I tell you to stand up, (laughs) and I expect you to sing, but who am I? Who am I? Right? You just pray. Stand out. Be a little awkward, but that's okay. God loves a cheerful singer, but to sing with thankfulness. Obviously, people can do it wrongly. Some may sing selfishly because singing makes them feel good. Oh, I just feel good. Singing songs just make me just feel so empowered. It's all about my feeling and my experience. Me, 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 I, 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 I. It's a worship song you're singing, right? Who's the object of the worship? So some may sing selfishly being, because singing makes them feel good, feel good uh, or because they're skilled at it and are seeking to be esteemed by others. Some like to hear themselves sing, and they're like, really good at this one. 
You know, I mean, that is true, by the way. I mean, some, some, some have, you know, been in the church, and the, and the singing, especially maybe even the, on the stage and in a leading capacity, is really just a platform for them to showcase their abilities. And they go on to make successful careers and don't abide in Christ. They abandon the faith. Never were really saved in the first place. However, singing to God that is truly worshipful is singing that is done, Paul indicates, with a thankful spirit and thus truly comes from the heart, not just from the lips. If you're not letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly, though, then sin will be given room to work around and to persuade you to think more highly of yourself than you ought thus diminishing in your mind the holiness and righteousness of God and the seriousness of your own sin, which in turn diminishes in your mind the immensity of God's grace towards you. And thus, you're not very thankful. However, if you're letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly, if you're letting it fill your mind and captivate your thoughts, things will be put in proper perspective. And the thought of God's amazing grace and loving kindness poured out on you, a sinner, through the gift of his Son, will prompt you not only to be endlessly thankful, but also to express your immense gratitude to him in the most graceful and open way possible by singing songs of praise to him with all of your heart. There's no greater way to give praise to God. He's given us the ability to sing, I would say, ultimately for that reason. Now, let's look at verse 17. Paul has spoken of the overflow of activity of the richly indwelling word of Christ that occurs most prominently in the context of the corporate gatherings of the local church. Wouldn't you say? Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing. Where is that typically done the most? Right here right now, every Sunday, right? So the context there, it seems to be, even though it can carry out into the personal life, but it's really a focus on the, the corporate body, the activity together, teaching and modeling one another all wisdom, singing with thankfulness and hearts to God in unison. So Paul's spoken of those activities resulting from the richly indwelling word in that context. Now in verse 17, Paul seems to move his focus outward, into the realm of the church members' personal lives. As you can see in verse 18 and onward, which we'll cover next time, he shifts his attention where? To the home. I would say that verse 17 is Paul's transition to that sphere in which most of our life is lived out. In other words, verse 17 is a a bridge that connects verse 16 to the section that begins in verse 18 and goes on through chapter 4, verse 1. 17 is the transition. 17 is the bridge. It's making that movement out from Sunday morning into the rest of the week, into the personal lives of the members of the fellowship. So Paul says in verse 17, and whatever you do, 
in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. What does it mean to do everything in the name of Jesus? Well, here's what it means. It means to do everything with his glory and his reputation in view. Right? Some of you might be relieved. You think, you don't have to keep saying in Jesus' name everything, right? In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. I'm going to go to church in Jesus' name. It's a disposition. It's a mindset. Keep that in mind. If we do everything in Jesus' name, it is, it is to do everything with his glory, his glory, his, not ours, his glory and his reputation in view. It is to speak and to act in such ways that are consistent with his will and his instruction. Paul wrote elsewhere, kind of along these lines, in his letter to the church in Corinth. Here's what he said to them. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. What was the price? It was the precious blood of Christ, the righteous one, the Son of God. Paul also said to the church in Corinth, and he, Christ, died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. That's why you were saved. That's why he redeemed you with his life. So to the Colossians, Paul writes, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Let's recall what he said back in verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, when he appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. So let everything you say and do be done in the name of the Lord Jesus. Why? Because he is your life. Because he is your salvation. He is your future glory. Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Why? Because he is Jesus Christ the Lord. And that is how you received him when God saved you. Did you not? You received him by faith, by believing on him, trusting in him, and believing that he indeed he is Lord. Remember Paul's first command back in chapter 2, verse 6. He said, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. And here he says, Do everything in his name. One commentator sums up verse 17 in this way. Here at Colossians Chapter 3, verse 17, the whole life of the Christian stands under the name of Jesus. In in becoming a Christian, the believer calls upon Jesus as Lord and comes under the authority of Christ. He belongs wholly to him. Thus, everything he says or does ought to be done in the light of the fact that Jesus is his Lord. 
His behavior should be entirely consistent with Jesus' character, and this will occur as the word of Christ richly indwells him. So what does this tell us? Worship that is fueled by the richly indwelling word of Christ will not be relegated to corporate church gatherings on Sunday mornings, but instead will permeate all of life. That is, all of our activity, whether public or private, whether at home or at work, whether during joyful times or during sorrowful times, whether during peaceful times or during troubling times, from the extraordinary down to the mundane. Worship that is fueled by the richly indwelling word of Christ will permeate all of life. Paul said, and whatever you do, and we could add to that, whenever and wherever you are, whatever you do, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Just as it is only fitting that we sing songs of praise to God with thankfulness, it's only fitting that our lives be lived out before God with thanksgiving. We are to be giving thanks to God the Father, who, as Paul said back in chapter 1, qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We are to be giving thanks to God the Father, who graciously intervened while we were dead in our trespasses, as Paul said back in chapter 2, and made us alive together with Christ. God saved you. He made us alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. What did he do with that? Well, he set it aside, nailing it to the cross of Christ. It is through the Son that is, because of his saving work, that the Father has reconciled us to himself. He has done this through the Son. Therefore, as we see Paul saying here, it is through the Son that is because of his saving work on our behalf. It is through the Son that we may now rightly and truly render thanks to the Father. We've been reconciled to him. And here's how... One commentator sums up these two verses, if we kind of tie it all together. He said, the, ad- the attitude of praise, worship, and thankfulness thus commended, in verse 16, right? Thus commended, is not a merely inward attitude or confined to what happens when Christians gather for worship. The same attitude should lie behind and come to expression in everything done by Christians, both in their speech and in their actions. Worship in all of life. God saved us that we might live rightly before him, that we might indeed worship him, our creator, our good and holy and righteous God. That's how it ought to be, worship in all of life. This is truly living in a manner that's 
worthy of the Lord, that's truly worthy of him. That's what it looks like. And the means to getting there is by what? Letting the word of Christ dwell richly in you. So let this be your ambition. That's the commandment. Seek to obey it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for graciously saving us, intervening, even though we were dead in our trespasses and sins and our minds were not only darkened but hostile towards you, you chose to set your love on us and chose to intervene and to give us spiritual life. You chose to deliver us and rescue us that we might be your people. You have given us everlasting life in your son and we thank you for that and you have not counted our sins against us because of his voluntary death on the cross to atone for our guilt before you. How remarkable it is that you, Father, have adopted us as sons through him and have made us citizens of his coming kingdom. Now we ask that you, that you grant us the resolve to let his word dwell in us richly. Help us keep our way pure by guarding it according to his word. Let us not wander from it. Help us store it up in our hearts and make it our meditation so that it readily flows from our lips to benefit others and to glorify you. And so that it moves us to live our lives in a manner worthy of your beloved son. In his name we pray. Amen.